Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Easter Bunny Team, supplemented by Elf Marines, released by Santa. For special service measuring to ensure all hidden eggs maintain appropriate social distance. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a discussion with several authors for a great new anthology this time. The book is called Overruled, and it is all about lawyers, courtrooms, and the uses and abuses of the law in future settings, science fiction settings, science fiction law and order at its finest. We have the great artist Tom Kidd, who did the cover for the book and has turned in a story that leads off the anthology, talking about his story and and art and such. We have Susan R. Matthews, the creator of the Under Jurisdiction books, who contributes a story to the anthology set in the outskirts of her wonderfully rich Under Jurisdiction Far Future Galactic Empire. And Christopher Rocchio joins us. He is the co-editor of the book, and he also has a story in there set in his own Sun Eater space opera series, which is a very cool sort of Roman take on a far future space opera. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. You may have noticed this week that we have introduced a series of reading tips to supplement the usual Bain-Free Radio Hour podcast. Why? Well, our feeling is that in these somewhat uncertain days, there's nothing like reading a good book to give you a mental break, lift the spirits, and even inspire you. Like a lot of people, I've been hunkered down where I live for days. And if you're a reader like me, you know you need good books. For morale boosters as badly as you need that morning shot of coffee or an excellent meal every once in a while. Reading is fun and entertaining, and, you know, it, it feeds the soul. It's part of who a lot of us are. Of course, we here at Bain love print books, but in the end, it's the story and characters that count the most, and we love ebooks just as much because, for me at least, it doesn't much matter whether I get lost in a print book or an ebook. It's getting into the story and living with the cool ideas and great characters that counts with any good book. So in that spirit, we want to keep you stocked up and want to keep our authors writing even more great stories. So with those reading tips, I've been pointing out some hidden gems that I know about because I've just been around here for years. A bunch of backlist bargains, such as our omnibus editions, which you can can get like all three of a book for cheaper than if you bought them separately. And I wanted to highlight some discounts and such. This month, we have a doozy of a discount. In celebration of science fiction legend Dr. Jerry Pornell's legacy, and in light of recent events, Bain Books wants to make sure a major milestone in science fiction publishing is available to every reader, whether they can get to the bookstore or not. So we are offering an ebook discount of 25% on Starborn and Godsons by Larry Nevin, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. 
This is the new book that completes the uh, Hair Rot series and a 50% discount on the previous two books in the series, the first and the second one. This is pure hard science fiction and wonder, um, adventure science fiction, just like you always get from Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell and Stephen Barnes. There's a ship with colonists and suspended animation that you arrive at this planet in the Toshetti um, 4 system, the planet Avalon. It's got this brutal ecology with nasty, implacable predators. They fight, um, establish a beachhead, establish a colony, but then a generation of people very different from the settlers with hugely different motives for traveling to the stars show up. Um, it's a wonderful science fiction premise. It's it's a lot of fun. And Dr. Jerry Pornell is back for a wonderful last hurrah of authorial excellence. Get brand spanking new Starborn and Godsons, 25% off Bain eBooks at Amazon. All, all of our eBooks booksellers have this discount applied. And the first two books in the series are half off, 50% off. Those books are The Legacy of Herat and Beowulf's Children. So go to Bain.com and find them there in all formats, including Kindle, RTF files, whatever ebook format you need, we provide at Bain.com. Or you can get them at any of our great ebook distributors, of course, and the same discounts apply there. And we sell our ebooks DRM free for ease of use. It's very simple. When you own a Bain ebook, you own the book. Don't forget those great print booksellers when all this hunkering down is over. But if you can't make it out at the moment, remember we got you covered with great science fiction and fantasy ebook reading. Check out Starborn and Godson's good stuff for a most excellent price. Want to welcome Tom Kidd, Susan R. Matthews, Christopher Rocchio to the podcast. Hi, guys. How's it going? And girls. Oh, hello. Hey, everyone. Hello, um, Tom Kidd uh, has worked for a number of publishers over many, many years. Uh, Bain Books, Random House, Daw, Warner, Doubleday, Ballantine, Marvel Comics Tour. He has won a World Fantasy Award and seven Chesleys, uh, probably more since we have this bio. He's the longtime cover artist for all of Eric Flint's Ring of Fire series books, but he's also an author. We're going to talk about a story he wrote this time. Um, we've had Tom on the podcast before several years ago. He talked about his art, if you're interested in that. He has a wonderful book, by the way, about how to how to draw science fiction art. Uh, Susan R. Matthews' debut novel, An Exchange of Hostages, was the first entry in her critically acclaimed Under Jurisdiction series. That was nominated for a Philip K. Dick Award, Susan was also a finalist for the Campbell Award for Best New Writer that year. Um, Bain has published or reprinted the entire under-jurisdiction science fiction series. The first six are collected in three omnibus editions, Fleet Inquisitor, Fleet Renegade, and what's the third one called, Susan? I forget for a second. Fleet Insurgent. Fleet Insurgent. And the newest entry in the series are Blood Enemies and Crimes Against Humanity, published by Bain. Um, Susan lives in Seattle with her wife Maggie and delightful dogs and her ham radio addiction. Um, Christopher Rocchio is the author of the Sun Eater Chronicle, a space opera series from Daw Books, the first novel of which, uh, Empire Silence, is available now. Wait a minute, the second novel's out too. What's the second book called, Christopher? Uh, Howling Dark. 
Howling Dark. And we have a, a great interview with Christopher talking about that on the podcast as well. He is assistant editor at Bain Books and a graduate of North Carolina State University. And he lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. Where do you live, Tom? You live somewhere in the northeast, right? I, I live in New Milford, Connecticut. In Connecticut. Uh, it's a little little town with a lot of people, a town green, and it's pleasant and quiet. That's what I like about it. Uh, good place for an artist. So uh, out now at Booksellers Everywhere is this, this wonderful anthology called Overruled, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio, who also has a story in it. Um, Christopher, can you sort of set the, give us a little pricey or idea of the, of the anthology. What, what is it and what are the stories in it? It sounds lawyerly. Yes. Yeah, so uh, so what we do, right, is Hank uh, Hank Davis has been with Bain for uh, you know uh, four billion years, and one of the things Hank does is he goes through and he collects uh, uh, reprint stories to put together in these anthologies. He usually comes up with a theme. He's done uh, time travel, romance stories, and monster stories, and comedy stories, and he thought it'd be fun to do uh, you know a Law and Order anthology, right? Uh, uh, courtroom stories, uh, things involving lawyers. Science fiction and fantasy, uh, although mostly science fiction, and so that was uh, that was where we uh, where we got this. Uh, we thought we'd go through and we'd find a bunch of uh, sci-fi fantasy stories that had a, uh, a judicial uh, you know theme bent to them, and so we uh, we picked up a big list. We got a Larry Niven story in there, uh, you know. Uh, we printed an old Heinlein. Uh, Larry Korea did a new story for us. Uh, Susan and Tom, of course, uh, both wrote new stories for us as well. Um, and it's uh, just pretty widespread of uh, and, and yourself, Tony. You know to think about it. Sorry, I've got uh, working on like three of these at one time, and they're all starting to run together. <laughs> I do have a story in here. That's right. Yes. Yeah, and a uh, couple a couple of odd ones too. Uh, there's a guy uh, named uh, Louis Newman who I think only wrote the one story that Hank turned up, um, and uh, wanted to uh, wanted to reprint that. It's never been reprinted. Uh, so that's one of the things we do too is we try to find some oddities. Um, you know things that haven't uh, haven't been reprinted, haven't seen the light of day in a while. We did a, you know, an original uh, Paul Anderson story, and the last one we did that hadn't been reprinted since the '50s. Like to do that sort of thing. Um, and so, uh, so one of the things I do want to talk about, and I'm sure that you, uh, you know you wanted to get there too, is that uh, Tom Kidd here did the cover for us, but he also wrote the cover story. Um, but he wrote the, uh, he did the cover off a sketch Hank drew. Uh, Hank was uh, doodling what he wanted. He wanted this cover with a robot lawyer uh, trying to plead his case to an alien judge in front of a you know in front of a spaceman who was uh, defending and stuff. And Tom uh, Tom ran with that, and we got this whole got this whole story with it too. And it was just really exciting how much of this grew in the telling, you know. Yeah, I, I yeah, yeah. if I can speak for myself, yeah, I. I, um, you, you put something in front of me that doesn't have a story, and and I want to make a story for it. So no one asked me to write anything. No one expected me to write anything. But for fun, I started writing it. And then I thought, well, why don't I just show it to them and see what happens? So now I have a published story. Well, let's let's talk about the sketcher because... It strikes me that the first part of it, uh, all right, it's a it's a story about uh, about a, a courtroom and there's a robot lawyer, 
and uh, a really cool um, sort of emotional support animal for the robot <laughs> lawyer that's a call out to Asimov, which is great. But um, it, it starts with our defendant, who is an artist, um, giving a, a little bit of a, a, a tale about the beginning of his life. And it strikes me that might have been autobiographical, Tom. Is that the case? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no. It, actually, every, everything I write has little bits of, I guess everyone does, every, little bits of everything that I've seen or experienced in some way. And, um, but no, you, you know what? You know what you're partly right is I have dealt with lawyers. Um, I've hired lawyers, and I wrote about that frustration. I can't write about being a lawyer, but I write about the frustration of dealing with one. And I gave um, Perry Bricklayer, the, the robot barrister there, terrible qualities. And then I wrote about um, Skechers or, or Scribbler's um, frustration with that. So that's how that came about. Now, I want to say um, one, one thing. Um, I, I really want to thank Tony Weisskopf. She, she, she saw the story first, and she had many, many insightful editing notes for it, and she made it far stronger. And, of course, Hank and Christopher, too, for considering it. Um, so that was, that, was, that, that was great, great help for me. Um, but I'm going to go back to the cover, um, and, and, and I made some notes about the cover. <laughs> And I'm going to kind of read them and uh, um, analyzing the cover. Uh, what the hell is going on in this thing? That's, my, that's, that's what I try to do with covers is make people wonder what's going on. Um, and it looks like a court in a steam room, something that only a mollusk could enjoy, uh, a, slug, slug, <laughs> a slug judge with a gavel and a peruke on his head. I in a book of some sort of hieroglyphic art on it. Does he approve or disapprove? The robot wears a powdered wig, so he must be a barrister making his case. Why does this defendant look worried, and why does he wear, wear a space suit, if that's what it is, or is it something insidious? What kind of creature is at their feet? Here's my answers. Yes, a mollusk judge. Yes, a robot lawyer named Perry Bricklayer. At his feet is emotional support animal. You're correct. Uh, Dr. Susan Calvin, the defendant is an artist, and I made a note here, write what you know. And the spacesuit is actually an execution suit. Now, I gave away a big plot point in the story, but I thought, I, I thought why would he be wearing a spacesuit? It makes no sense. And, and Hank put that's, – actually, that's one of the things I like is creating a situation that makes no sense and then – making up a story to go with that situation that makes a kind of sense. Um, the other thing that was a little bit of an experiment for me, and I've written a, a lot of fiction, <laughs> uh, but I never tried to write one that would be consciously funny. And so this, is, this was a unique thing for me in that I actually was trying to go for laughs, and I, I may have overdone it. Well, I don't know. It works pretty well. 
we don't publish no crap here at Bain. <laughs> mind you, mind you, be, 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 between Tony and my wife, I had to go through and put some lines. <laughs> some of my my maybe um, too over the top stuff. It, I I have this philosophy that the only way to know where the how far I can go is to go over the line, and then have people tell me you. Tom, you've gone too far this time. And each year for several years, um, my wife and I, we, we came up with a weird Christmas card. And because I wanted to get her to help me with it and give me ideas, I would draw up absolutely salacious stuff about Santa Claus. That there was no way we could send these cards to our relatives. And then, then she would tell me, that I couldn't do that and, and force her to help me come up with something more palatable. So it's, it's just an approach. Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know if anyone ever, made. anyone else that uses that approach, but it, it works for me uh, to go <laughs> too far to find out where I really should be. Uh. Tell us about the, I mean, but the character, uh, you call him uh, Scribbler. Uh, his real name is uh, Laudant Finaloup Granger or something like that. Um, he has left Earth and he goes around sketching out in the uh, cosmos. What what's the what's the milieu here? What's going on? Why would anyone need a sketcher to go around um, on spaceships drawing things? What was your justification for? Yeah, that's a, that's 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 the crux of the matter, and um, that's one of the hardest things to kind of explain within the story. Uh, what what need do we have for artists in space? Uh, and and I work very hard to make a case for that in that story, uh, saying that one there was a a, a race of people um, in this part of the universe where it's just Full of way too many sentient species is just for whatever reason that part of the galaxy is just cram packed with them. While we have very few around us, um, and uh, the species was just terrible about getting in the way, taking photographs of everything, and then they would um, do the, sort of a cultural appropriation thing, and they would take all these wonderful pictures of all these planets and their cultures and everything, and then they would profit from the photographs. So this section of the galaxy pretty much has a big sign over it that says, no photographs. So now only an artist can come in and make a record of what, what they see. And the other thing, because there's so many aliens, um, and they come in contact with each other, maybe once every hundred years, languages change so quickly that they can't even communicate with other members of their own species, much less a new species, uh, with language. And there's no universal translator. That, that's way too easy. So um, I have any real negotiating, ne negotiation going on between alien species done in the presence of sketchers. Each side has a sketcher and they communicate directly with art. And um, I actually wrote a prequel um, to the sketcher 
called The First Sketcher. And I explain, I tell the first contact story between humans and another race that already has a sketcher on board its ship. And we have to figure out that we need one. And fortunately, uh, the, the one person on the ship who's an artist has also, um, he's an expert in meeting new cultures. And so he knows all the techniques and to, to, to try to uh, communicate with someone who doesn't speak our language and has none of our cultural background. And he resolves this, and he becomes the story is the first sketcher. He becomes the first sketcher. That's completely written, um, and and um, I I just keep rewriting it. So why is this scribbler uh, in court? What's he accused of? What's going on? Yeah, he's he's effectively accused of murder of poisoning somebody. That's it's a simple case of um, someone accused of a crime they didn't commit, and uh, Perry has to prove he he didn't do it. But Perry's not really interested in in uh, proving he didn't do it. He's he's interested in getting paid. So he wants he wants um, yeah he wants he wants Scribbler to take the plea, and the plea is is awful as far as far. <laughs> Worse than death, and um, so they have to work work all that out. They, the everything that happens actually in that story, all all the sort of plot parts of it, uh, pushed over into uh, the further adventures of um, they. Um, Scribbler teams up with Perry, uh, another character named Queen Catherine, and uh, a character somewhat nicknamed Plain Jane, and um, they uh, form a detect- detective detective agency. I'm laughing as I say that. I, I need to send the – I have some sketches of this stuff too, of the, all these characters, all as a group. Um, and um, they, they, they go on having additional adventures together. Among the things they do, um, and it's, I think it's mentioned in the, in the sketcher, um, uh, they meet with a, uh, a group of people who they're, they're searching for some missing criminals, some escaped convicts, and they meet with a group of people who call themselves Skinners. And Skinners are uh, aliens who have furry or scaly skin, and they wear human-like skin over it and have conventions. They call themselves Skinners. <laughs> I haven't written a lot of sort of totally ridiculous SF, and that's what this ended up being. So I'm not. I've, I've been told. I've been told, Tom, this some of this doesn't make scientific sense. What you're doing, and and all I do, I, I I try to rewrite it and add a little bit more hint that there's some science behind some of these ideas, and. Um, it, it, I don't know. I know it's not necessary, but it's really a lot of fun to to come up with a reasonable explanation for something that pretty much makes no sense. I'm enjoying writing way too much um, uh, on, a, on a regular basis. My wife turns to me and says, 
don't you have a cover due in three days? And you're sitting here writing. I go, yeah, I better get, I better get back to painting. Well, we want you to keep doing both. Um, the the one thing about the story that I the the scene I like the best is where um, he gets the, he gets in kind of a a seduction scene with an alien by drawing. Although it's she's more of a femme fatale as it turns out. Um, talk a little bit about that because I thought that that was the most compelling like moment in the story, and it was like. I could almost feel him being seduced by this really, you know, alien creature because she could draw. Yeah. Um, well, here's the terrible truth about that um, part of the story. Um, I, I have step relatives who are uh, very religious, and but they love me as an artist. They they like the idea. They they have a um, a stepbrother who's an artist uh, and who does all these crazy paintings. And um, uh, I thought of them. I thought of them when I wrote the scene because I thought they'd be horrified by it. And um, the idea of this sort of and that's one of the things is I don't see at least not with television science fiction. I don't see really covering the idea of of um, different sentient species having sex and the sort of difficulties involved. And um, Scribbler needs to draw out his anatomy um, for the woman. Um, and um, she needs to draw out her anatomy for him so that they can see if they're even compatible. Uh, so it, it, I, I wrote I wrote, uh, this is actually one of those scenes that I wrote, and my wife said, no, you, you, can't, you can't write that. <laughs> and it, and I, I described how a cloaca worked in there. <laughs> and she said, take that out. Take that out. So, so I did. So I did. But no, I was, try- I was trying to write something that, that um, if I read it, that my own face would turn red at reading it. That was kind of the purpose there. If that makes sense at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was pretty uh pretty hot for an alien sex scene. <laughs> so So, uh Christopher, uh anything else that you you might want to ask or say about Tom's story? Well, what I only thing I want to add, uh, actually, is something I wanted to point out to you too, which is that Tom, you worked on a couple more stories with these characters, right? Um, yes. Did you have? Um, so we were talking about maybe bringing one of those to the website at some point. Is there anything you want to say about that other story that you haven't mentioned already? Um. Well, one thing uh, that probably doesn't mean anything to anybody. Uh. Uh. And, and I checked to make sure this was okay with the family. But I, I, it's a, this story, the first catcher, it, Scribbler's not in it. Um, I, he, he's still like a junior high school student on, on Earth trying to get by. Um, middle school, um, or towards the end of middle school, headed into high school. And... Um, 
So the the other character is a guy named William O'Connor, and I named him after a friend of mine who died a couple years ago, another artist, and so it's a tribute to him in a way. And here's the thing about writing about somebody like that is with, with Scribbler, I give him a lot of bad qualities. I have him make a lot of mistakes. He's very foolish uh, on many levels. Um, he, 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 he has a life full of regrets. But William O'Connor, now I had to write him as almost like Jesus. <laughs> I'm wondering if I've overdone it making, making a character too good. And um, so that's one of the things that's a little bit different about that. It's also told from, let's see, about five different points of view. Uh, and that made a much more complicated story that I needed to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite some more. And I've been working on it since um, Bang Books ag- agreed to buy the sketcher. And it's um I don't know I don't I don't know if I'm even ready to um to show it to anybody yet. Um and that this this quality of mine is why I work well as an illustrator. Illustrations required have deadlines and you're required to meet those deadlines. So I know that I'm gonna I know that I'm gonna finish a painting, but if I'm working on a painting for myself, it could take years to complete because I keep thinking I can make this 1% better. And it's a very very bad quality. I know it is. And I, I also do another thing that that's people tell me not to do. I'll take old paintings, pull them out, and go, you know what, I think I know how to make this old painting better, and then I'll paint on it. So um, I, I maybe when, when I... I have to. I'm supposed to get his sketches today to to Tony uh, for two Eric Flint books, and um, uh, I, um, I I and I also want to do the final work on this story at the same time. But the sketches come first. Can we? Shall we move ahead and talk a little bit about Susan's story? Well, your story is called "The Riot That Wasn't in Port Neeks. And uh, this is set in under jurisdiction universe. Can you sort of, I mean, a lot of some people that are listening will not have heard or understand the uh, the under jurisdiction universe. Um, can you sort of set it up for and tell us what it is so that um, because you know I th- I think it's one of the great science fiction space opera creations of our time. The, the pertinent part of the series um, that. Uh, that helps to make this story comprehensible, I hope, Um, pertains to the fact that under jurisdiction, when we talk about jurisdiction, we mean that, I mean that, the um, overarching intergalactic uh, sort of a governmental system is based on a a legal model. Um, Jurisdiction started um, a long, long time ago uh, as basically a Coast Guard. Uh, It started for the regulation of trade. Um, And at this particular point, things have gotten hugely bloated. It it worked very well for a long time to facilitate uh, trade and communication between 
uh, all of the world families under jurisdiction as they were encountered piece by piece by piece. Uh, one of the newer uh, systems to uh, come under jurisdiction is uh, is the home system of my uh, protagonist, uh, Andre Kojusko, who is from the Dobrudi Combine. Uh, and he, he um, actually comes from a very privileged position within the Dolgaruki Combine. So you got a jurisdiction where the emphasis is on the rule of law and the judicial order. At the same time, this has been going on for a while, as I indicated uh, earlier on in these remarks. Um, and the bigger and bigger the system gets, the uh, more and more it starts to slip out of strict control around the periphery. Uh, as the series began in uh, or 25 years ago or whenever, um, we were at a point where the uh, jurisdiction government was, was perturbed about the fact that it was losing control of uh, its subject world. Um, and so it had begun to try some social engineering that would uh, increase uh, control over individual behavior and so on and so forth. Uh, and this has been developing into what amounts to state-sponsored terrorism. Um, that's where my protagonist uh, starts his story uh, way back when. Um, and historically, uh, huge uh, legalistic of systems of government, like uh, the Chinese legalists, for instance, um, they they don't really usually last all of that long simply because it's difficult to maintain social control. Uh, jurisdiction can do it um, more effectively because, you know, we got all these um, wonderful science fiction space opera sorts of tools. Uh, but it, these, these things don't last forever, and that is the point at which we are in the jurisdiction series. One of the big things that's happened under jurisdiction is that there are places that you can get to where the jurisdiction, the, the jurisdiction's writ does not extend. There is no jurisdiction's bench. There is no rule of law. Uh, these are people, they're refugees. Uh, a lot of them are just plain crooks. Uh, so you've got the concept or the idea of a place called Gambion Space. It has no government structure. But it's getting big enough that people, the people who are in Gambian space are really starting to think, we need some kind of structure. Well, you know, if, you, um, if you're reading about your Icelandic history uh, and how that relates to English common law, one of the things that you find out that's really interesting about, did I say Irish? I meant Icelandic. One of the things you find that's really interesting about the uh, history of Iceland prior to about 1000 AD is that they did not have any police. They did not have any, uh, any army. Uh, law and order had to be maintained by uh, influential um, individuals who could rally more armed men to support their point of view than the other guy could. Um, and the uh, model... Uh, for law in Iceland up to a certain point was basically you had a law code that was short enough that um, the speaker, the law speaker, uh, could recite it uh, by thirds uh, every year. So every year at the uh, Singmeet, 
the law speaker was required to recite one-third of the law code, which was kind of confusingly referred to as Gregus uh, before the vodka, and I'm not sure exactly why that happened. Um, and while the law speaker was uh, doing um, a, uh, a function of uh, discussing the legal uh, issues at, uh, at play in uh, property disputes, for instance, uh, influential uh, public opinion people uh, would get up and they would speak, and they would speak about trying to establish what the right and wrong of it is. Uh, and uh, in an effort to obtain and maintain a consensus. Uh, in the story uh, that I got to do for this anthology, and I'd like to thank uh, Bain for uh, giving me the opportunity to, to, to play here, uh, we're in Gone Beyond Space, uh, and as social controls fail under jurisdiction, people are going off in their own different directions. And one of the different directions that one of the large governmental structures uh, is exploring is uh, recruiting new and different people for the jurisdiction's bench itself. And one of these judiciaries has sent a young judge into Gone Beyond Space. He's a very young uh, man, uh, uh, comparatively speaking, uh, and and he's a man, and the prejudice under jurisdiction has been that, you know, you can't really trust the guys to uh, maintain the law at the uppermost levels because we all know that men are too emotional and too involved uh, in um, in all kinds of different tangential social issues. So it's been a it's been a um, prejudice for a long time that men are not subject to uh, speak the law uh, at the uppermost levels. And one judge has decided that that, among other things, is an important part of social change. So that judge has sent the protagonist of the story about the riot that wasn't, a young man named um, Bat Jorvik, to Gombe on space to see what's what. So the story about the riot that wasn't important meets is a story about how are you going to develop a common understanding of right and wrong and uh, uh, con uh, contract law where there is no law. This has got to depend, at least in this story, on the achievement of consensus. Um, and at the same time, you have got increasingly angry and frustrated people lining up on both sides of a contract over the interpretation of contract law. So um, I guess that doesn't really sound exciting, but I was really excited about it. Well, but it's the, uh, I mean, it, you're basically at a, at a thing meet, like with Vikings, except it's science fiction. And at any moment, things could erupt and go very badly and people could get killed. And it's, it's, it's basically these um, it's an argument over cargo, which is extremely important in this world, right? Uh, it's an argument about cargo, and that leads us to an argument about who is to be trusted, uh, whose word is to be trusted, uh, who will um, honorably and honestly fulfill the uh, requirements of a contract law that people are making up as they go along. <laughs> yeah. 
But there's, and a lot of these people have come from jurisdiction, and jurisdiction, I, you always characterize it so pleasantly, but in the novels, it's pretty nasty. It's totalitarian at the, you know, in the, in the state of the books. Maybe it wasn't before, but, you know, and Andre, uh, Andre is, started out as a, an official torturer. Um, he is no longer, and the fact that he is no longer is very important in this story because he has a certain uh, moral authority that, that comes from having cast aside those old ways, right? He's sort of a background figure in the story, but he's very important in its outcome. Um, you're quite right. Um, one of the things that Andre represents in Gone Beyond Space is the absolute worst of everything under jurisdiction because he was uh, a state-sponsored torturer for his early career. Um, and he isn't any longer. As a very notorious person, as a person that a lot of people in Gone Beyond have got every reason to hate passionately and justifiably, um, he's a he's real visi visible sort of a symbol of And one of the things that happens in The Riot That Wasn't is that... Um, Andre is meeting this judge. He's actually already met this judge in uh, Crimes Against Humanity, the uh, jurisdiction novel that was printed at the beginning of last year. So he's actually met this young man. And one of the kind of interesting things for me to write was that in this short story, he's Andre Kosciusko, uh, most notorious pain master in the inventory, uh, is in public. Uh, visibly and uh, blatantly and overtly uh, declaring his subordination to a judge because the judge is the rule of law. So that was kind of fun. Uh, after all of the years of Andre being the absolute master in his environment, a man who by definition cannot commit any crimes except for a really limited uh, range, and uh, you got this guy, and he sits down as a young man, probably about mm, two-thirds of his age or half of his age, and says, I see uh, Andre Kosciusko and all that, but that Jorvik represents the rule of law uh, in a positive environment, a positive and creative environment. So there's one of the things that I thought was fun. I, I will also... Um, uh, take advantage, shameless advantage of almost every opportunity to um, get those people in there, uh, Andre uh, Stolein, the uh, his security people, because I like them. Uh, but there was actually a point, <laughs> there was actually a point for him to be yeah. in this story. <laughs> it's, a, it's a story about how law, or it's like, uh, sort of like Deadwood in space, in that um, maybe the point of law isn't so important as the fact that they're gonna, they're gonna work it out and still kill each other, maybe. <laughs> By the end of it, they've got to work it out, and while they're working it out, they are also, everybody's kind of aware of the fact that they're also defining what um, honest behavior uh, and a set of rules that everybody can agree to. They're they're in the process of defining that. So these are people that are very much uh, creating their own. Uh, structures and creating their own futures and trying to do a better job of it. 
Well, uh, let's talk about Victim of Changes uh, briefly. This is set in your um, your, your Sun Eater universe, uh, which is a, also a big space opera uh, kind of thing. Um, it has all this echoes of the Spanish Inquisition and, and such. Um, was that deliberate? I think it probably was. Um, well, yes. Uh, I am Catholic, so I, I you know these things uh, hang around. Uh, in, in my head a bit. But I, I was thinking about witch burnings, uh, which, having said that I'm Catholic, I should say I think about a lot. Um, so, uh, Tom, Susan, what are you guys working on right now? Uh, Tom told us a little bit. He's working on covers that you must finish. What are you, what are you working on uh, at the moment? What's your next uh, next thing? That's, we, we talked a little bit about the story that you were working on. Um, what, what is some of your other fiction? Let's... Uh, bring that up momentarily so we can have people look for it. Actually, um, one thing I'm working on is um, um, a series of books by, this is this, it's actually for subterrane, Subterranean. Um, it's I a series of books again. by, hey, well, maybe we should go back to, to, to Christopher. Oh, go ahead, sorry. Okay. Um, uh, it, it, it's a Books of Babel uh, by Josiah Bancroft, and uh, I'm doing an illu- illustrated editions of them uh, for Subterranean, as I've said, and that's taking up a good portion of my time. Um, and then um, I, besides the two Eric Flint books that I'm doing sketches for, um, I'm also partway into a painting for uh, a Grantville Gazette, which I really love doing those covers with Eric because this is almost like writing for me. Um, Eric contacts me and says, Tom, present me with a few ideas for a cover, and I'll write a story around it. So that's that's in progress. Uh, I actually stopped work on that so that I could get these these sketches done. So that's that's my um that's my art side of things and on the writing side of things um I'm working on a novel called An Unexpected Earth. And it's um it's the earth is now quite a bit different and people are um returning to it. Uh, some people stayed, and we start discovering things we don't know. And it's very difficult to know everything that's going on in the planet because it's all now covered in trees and shrubbery, and there's unusual stuff hidden down underneath the earth and uh, strange new creatures that have come here. Um, people, people travel around um, in things they call homers, which are torus-shaped airships. In other words, they're like like donuts. And that's the that's that's the thing that's been kind of taking up my my at at the end of the day. Um, I have a choice of of reading, uh, watching something on Netflix, or or writing, and. I, I find that the the writing, strangely enough, relaxes me and puts me into a dream state, 
and then then I can actually go to bed, fall asleep, and dream some more of the story. So um, the, I'm always figuring out ways to to work even even during sleep hours. So that's uh, that's what's going on. Well, very cool. What is that called again? It's an unexpected earth. I haven't told, really explained everything about it, but it's um, it's it, it takes a it has a lot of little concepts that I've been um, playing with over the years, and they're they're showing up in the stories here and there. And I I, I love the idea of like science fiction stories that have a lot of ideas, and that's what an unexpected earth is. It's filled with just one idea after another. Hopefully, some will hit as new ideas to people, but I can't know everything that's out there, so I'm sure a lot of it will, oh, well, I've read this somewhere before. Uh, oh, one, of the, one of the small things in it, I'll just give you an idea, one small, tiny little thing that I thought was a fun idea is um, I needed some characters, a few characters to accidentally fall asleep, and I didn't want to drug them or anything. And, and they all get on this bus. They're riding along on the bus. And they find out that they're sitting um, on, in bus chairs that have empathy foam in them. And it naturally, empathically, knows what they need to rest the most and adjust itself to, to them. And it, I never heard of empathy foam before, so that, 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 I don't know how it would work. But uh, little ideas like that, a lot of little things like that. Cool, cool. Well... We will uh, we'll be looking forward to uh, Tom Kidd's kitchen sink science fiction <laughs> novel when you finally get it uh, get it done. Well, let me uh, return to Christopher, uh, Victim of Changes. Tell us a little bit about it. Now, I, I read a lot about, uh, about witch burnings and, and, uh, and these things as historical phenomenon. And they're, uh, the way that they're misrepresented historically, they're far less common than people believe. It was actually against church doctrine for hundreds of years even to believe in witchcraft. Um, but it occurs to me that if um, witchcraft... If, if, if magic were real, right, and there were witches, and there were people who could do these malicious things to people at a distance, or could do any, you know, m you know, malicious things at a distance, um, then it might we might actually have a moral duty to get rid of them uh, because it's extremely dangerous. Um, it's a thing that bothers me in fantasy series all the time. But this is a science fiction universe, uh, and so the question is, you know, what? things are similarly dangerous by virtue of their mere existence. One of them in this universe is uh, cyborgs. And so this is a story uh, in which a, uh, a religious institution, not the Catholic Church, but a, a science fictional one, uh, that bears some superficial similarities um, to it, uh, is trying to get rid of cyborgs um, because they are extremely dangerous. They can hide all sorts of weapons inside them. Um, they can hack uh, systems uh, almost telepathically, as it were, right? You see there's an identity between magic and technology uh, here. And it's quite simply, it's, it's a sentencing hearing. It's not even really a trial because it's obvious that this person is a, uh, a cyborg. Um, 
she's this huge, um, you know, uh, tank sized, you know, incredible Hulk sized, uh, machine person with all sorts of weapons and stuff. And she's been brought in, uh, uh, under restraint, you know, to be told basically we're going to shut you down. Uh, but if you, uh, you know, recant your, you know, uh, you apologize for being a cyborg, we'll put you down more, you know, politely. Uh, which she won't do because uh, the cyborgs are um, in much the same way that Susan has gone beyond space. There's, uh, there are people I call the extrasolarians who live between star systems uh, in uh, asteroids, uh, rogue planets, things like that, and they try to avoid law and order. They're uh, radical libertarians, uh, as it were, and the Empire does not, uh, does not like that they exist. They violate a lot of their laws, uh, cyborging themselves uh, being one of them. Uh, and she, of course, doesn't respect the, the Empire's authority and all of these things, and um, and you know isn't isn't going to stand for it. And it, it's it's a pretty straightforward. You know, she uh, of course has some. Well, excuse me. There, she's got some tricks up her sleeve, right? Being a cyborg, and she tries to uh, to get out of this and to uh, to attack the court, and, uh, and things play out as they will. And so that was. Yeah. She also has her daughter there. Yes, uh, that's one of the, the mitigating features is she has a uh, still fully human child with her, uh, her child, and the court is trying to figure out what to do with with that that person, right? Because she's still a person um, by the uh, by the court's standards, and so there's a question of um, you know where that line between human and post-human um, you know is exactly. Um, and the court's trying to work out what to do with the mother and the kid in context. Um, and there's a, a bit at the end because, of course, uh, they do they do sentence. Uh, the, part of it too is that the, the mother doesn't get to know what happens to a kid, formally speaking. And there's a little bit of acknowledgement of um, what's left in the mother's humanity, and that the judge tries to find a way to communicate that the kid will be okay. Um, so there's a lot of questions about, you know, where that, again, where that line is between being a person and, and not being a person anymore. Again, from this perspective. Uh, yeah. Well, you did, um, you, you don't make anything particular, you know, everything's a little bit gray in, in your world. Um, sometimes a lot gray. Um, you called your main character Leocadia, right, who was a, um, uh, a martyr under one of the empires, one of the emperors. Um, she was a Christian martyr that wouldn't wouldn't recant, right? Right, because um, I don't I don't like to give people uh, sermons uh, when I write stories. I don't um, I don't want to take sides as an artist because I think art is more interesting uh, when it can do multiple things at once. And if for some people the story means one thing, and for some people it means another, I think that's a feature and not a bug. And so giving her um, the name of a Christian martyr, but putting her in the place of the witch, right, um, is, a, uh, is a way of trying to have my cake and eat it too, I suppose, um, to tell two stories at once. Um, because while it's certainly, you know, the case, a case could certainly be made that if you've got witches whose powers are real, right, in this case cyborg, um, maybe the world is better off uh, safe from them. Right, but then you also have these are obviously people, uh, 
you know, side of the story too. And I wanted to try and do it both ways. And I think that the story, and I think any story is stronger for trying to, you know, leave space for its own opposition. Um, if that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Well, that's cool. So, uh, well, let's, uh, let's wind things down. What are you, uh, what are you working on uh, at the moment, Christopher? Uh, yeah, I just turned in book three, actually. I had some uh, revisions. My editor was late uh, later in getting back some things to me. I just got married uh, end of February, which slowed me down uh, in, terms of, <laughs> in terms of writing. Um, don't tell Jenna I said that. Uh, she will roll her eyes at me. Uh, so I, uh, I just finished book three last week, and I'm working on book four now. Uh, I also have three more anthologies I'm editing uh, for Bain. The uh, first one is called World Breakers. It's uh, all uh, Tony pitched to me as uh, Tony Weisskopf as off-brand Bolo stories. Uh, it's about uh, AI-controlled tanks, and uh, you know, we got Deborah uh, Rebel's going to do a story for that. We got a bunch of uh, Bane worthies lined up. Uh, the next one I'm doing is uh, Sword and Planet. Uh, it's going to be a bunch of Burroughs, Vance style, you know, uh, like John Carter of Mars style uh, adventure stories in space, which is kind of my thing. And then the one after that, I haven't really gotten to yet because two is enough at once, is going to be Xeno um, archaeology stories. Uh, there's going to be, uh, you know, alien ruins and stuff we're going to start working on towards the end of the year, but I've got all three of them on my plate. So. Cool. Cool. And Susan. Um, you are you still in U-boat land? I know you were fascinated by U-boats last year. Yeah, I have. I'm working about three projects right now. Uh, I'm taking advantage of the fact that we're all sequestered to uh, participate in uh, NaNoWriMo summer camp, for instance. Uh, NaNoWriMo is um, uh, is doing its darndest to provide uh, lots of opportunities for us to accomplish something. Um, uh, while we're uh, otherwise more or less confined uh, to our uh, geographical footprint. So let's see here. At the beginning of the year, I delivered a novel to a small press that is starting up. Um, the, it, it is a first of a trilogy of historical romantic fantasy novels um, about a young man in uh, the Northwest Territories uh, in India uh, while at the point at which that was kind of tottering on the edge of a full-scale Raj, as a person thinks of it historically. And the elevator pitch for that series is Kipling's Kim with Kinks. Uh, so I've got the second one of that, um, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the second one of that I owe at the end of the year, um, what is number? Oh, uh, one project is uh, when it turns out, however long it takes for uh, for there to um, be sufficient interest to justify another jurisdiction novel. Um, I'm working uh, a treatment called uh, Diaspora, which relies on the fact that when you have gone to gone beyond space, you may have lost contact with anybody back home partially because you don't want anybody to find you. Uh, in diaspora, uh, uh, the idea is that people um, do occasionally encounter unexpected family that they thought uh, were dead. 
uh, one of the characters in uh, Under Jurisdiction uh, who has always been told that she was an orphan may not have been. And there's also, of course, the issue that once you uh, take the security troops out of jurisdiction, those people are all going to uh, become free for the first time in decades to uh, become human beings themselves, loosely, so to speak, and uh, make their make their destinies now that they are no longer uh, security slaves. So I'm uh, working on exactly what my stu- structure is for diaspora, but what I'm actively writing right now is Ghost Flotilla U-Boats. Uh, there was a short story published by Bain uh, a few years ago about the basic concept of uh, U-boats that have become unmoored in space and time. And uh, the novella that I'm writing uh, to kick that one off is the one where the U-boat goes goes down in Arctic waters in February of 1945 and surfaces in Arctic waters in April or May of 2005, uh, causing considerable perplexity to all uh, and sundry, uh, including at this particular point the Soviet crew of a weather station that is about ready to be torpedoed. torpedoed. That's what I'm doing. Everyone is is busily uh, churning out great new stuff. Um, The book out right now is Overruled, which is uh, an anthology of stories about the law and courtrooms in science fiction settings. Um, and it's really great, and we would really love people to uh, to get the ebook if they can't get to the bookstores this month, um, because it's it's full of good stuff. Um, Tom Kidd, Susan R. Matthews, and Christopher Rocchio, thank you guys so much for talking about your stories in Overruled today. Thank, thank you. you. So Susan, Kilo Foxtrot Seven, Romeo Tango Foxtrot, back to next. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League. And hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. SLNS Quebec. Tongue System. Solarian League. Admiral Capriotti tipped back his chair, holding his coffee cup in both hands, and looked around the briefing room table aboard SLNS Quebec at the senior members of his staff. All right, he said, now that we've covered the bare essentials, does anyone have any immediate brilliant observations? 
The expected chuckle ran around the table and he smiled. Then he sipped coffee, lowered the cup, and allowed his expression to sober. Seriously, he said, this whole thing is coming at us pretty damned fast. I know all of you have a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross, and if I haven't mentioned this, I'm very happy with all of you for the way you've already dug in on that. But we all know perfectly well that the people who planned this must have missed something. Hopefully it's something minor, but it might not be. So I want each of you to spend the next 12 hours or so going over your individual parts of the ops plans. If there's anything, anything at all you think could, should, or might be tweaked to our advantage, I want to hear about it before we leave Zong. The one thing we know for certain about what happened to 11th Fleet is that it got the holy living hell kicked out of it. I have no intention of allowing that to happen to my task force. Is that understood? He let his eyes circle the table again in a brief bubble of silence, and then Vice Admiral Helland replied. Yes, sir, she said. I think I can speak for all of us when I say we have no more intention than you do to put on a repeat performance of that disaster. I believe you can safely conclude we'll be thinking very hard about ways to make sure we don't. That's what I wanted to hear, Angelica. Capriotti smiled. Then he nodded at the briefing room hatch. So that's about it for now, people. Go see about finding some supper. Angelica, I'd like you, Liang Tao, and Jason to stay behind for a moment. Of course, sir, Helen replied as the remainder of the staff stood, came respectfully to attention, and saluted. Capriotti, with his customary deplorable lack of formality, waved his coffee cup in general acknowledgement, and the staffers filed out of the compartment. The hatch slid shut behind them, and he let his chair come back upright and set the coffee cup back down on its saucer. The truth is, he said, I'm not entirely happy about this entire operation. I don't expect that to go beyond the four of us and Gabby, but I want to be sure we're all on the same page. May I ask in what way you're unhappy, sir? Helen asked in a careful tone. From a purely military perspective, I have two concerns, only one of which our orders explicitly approach. The first is that Cachalot is only 57 light years from Beowulf. Strategy and planning are busy assuming, on the basis of intelligence data they haven't seen fit to share with us, that neither Beowulf nor the Mantis have seen any reason to station a naval picket there, and I'm a little less confident on that head than Admiral Bernard. As nearly as I can follow the logic, Cachalot is seen as safely in their column, so there's no need for the imperialists to coerce the system on the one hand. On the other hand, especially with the Beowulf plebiscites still up in the air, they don't want to look like they're strong-arming Cachalot. I'm inclined to think strategy and planning's probably right about the absence of a major Manti picket for whatever combination of reasons, but I'm a long way from certain of it. Sir, Commodore Jason Schlegel said, you know I'm not a big fan of the analyses we've seen coming out of old Chicago. Having said that, I think the odds are good S&P is right about this one. He shrugged. There aren't many things I'd put past Beowulf at the moment, but they do seem to be bending over backward to present themselves in the most favorable light. And the Mantis are generating enough bad press in the league by this wormhole offensive of theirs that they're unlikely to up the ante by effectively occupying a neutral system as populous and wealthy as Cachalot. 
Capriotti considered the younger man thoughtfully. Schlegel was TF-783's intelligence officer. He was also an extremely bright officer, and at only 56 T years old, young for his rank, even in the gold braid-heavy SLN. Unlike altogether too many of his ilk, he brought a skeptic's eye to any intelligence report that crossed his desk, and Capriotti normally valued his input. He did in this case as well, actually, but also remembered that Schlegel considered Beowulf guilty of treason. The Commodore fully accepted the argument that Imogene Tsang's prong of 11th Fleet's disastrous attack would have suffered an even worse slaughter than Massimo Filaretta if Beowulf hadn't stopped her ships from transiting the Beowulf terminus. However, he also believed, probably with reason in Capriotti's opinion, that Beowulf was the source of Manticore's original intelligence about Operation Raging Justice. And he also believed Beowulf's complicity in Manticore's obvious swing to a rawly imperialist foreign policy and its evident intention of seceding posed an existential threat to the Salarian League. I said I was inclined to think Bernard's people are right, Jason, he pointed out mildly. Since we don't have any actual pre-attack reconnaissance to confirm that, however, I'm certainly not going to operate on the assumption that they have to be. Of course not, sir. However, the possibility that they aren't brings me to my second military concern, the one where we have clear direction. What we do if it turns out there is a Manti picket? His tone was considerably grimmer, and his three staffers glanced at one another. Sir, I know you won't like what I'm about to say, Admiral Helen said after a moment, but strategy and planning have a point. We can't afford to look ineffectual, especially after what happened at Spindle and Manticore. She did not, Capriotti noticed, mention other events at places with names like Zunker and Saltash. Under the circumstances, pulling back at what we all know the Newsies would label the first sign of resistance, what undercut Buccaneers' entire strategic premise. Liang Tao Rutger stirred, but said nothing. I'm fully aware of that, Angelica. Capriotti's voice was a bit frostier than the one in which he normally spoke to his chief of staff. I'm also aware of the reported loss of life in that mysterious attack on the Manti's home system. I know there are some who believe their officially released casualty numbers are inflated. Given what obviously happened to their industrial base, though, I doubt they were. And if it hadn't been for Spindle, how do you think League public opinion would have reacted to them? Helen started to reply, then paused. After a moment, she nodded slightly. One thing about her, Capriotti thought, she'd subscribed fully to Battlefleet Hubris, at least before the Battle of Spindle, and she still considered both Manticore and the Republic of Haven uppity neobarbs who needed to be taught their manners. Despite that, her brain actually worked. Point taken, sir, she said. If it hadn't come so close on Spindle's heels, the Yawada strike would have gotten an enormous amount of sympathetic play on the boards. And with damned good cause. Capriotti leaned forward, planting his forearms on the briefing room table. That was a sheer wanton slaughter, with no attempt at all to minimize civilian loss of life. Leave the kinetic impact damage on Sphinx completely out of the equation, and it was still unconscionable. Sir, Rutger said cautiously, should we gather from where you're going with this that you're not in favor of Parthian? I believe that would be a safe assumption on your part, Yang Tao. Capriotti smiled thinly. 
I always was a transparent, easily read sort. Sir, I understand your concerns and your repugnance, I really do, Helen said. But as I just said, if Parthian's taken off the table, then Buccaneer's fundamental strategic premise is compromised. It may be compromised, Capriotti corrected her. A lot would depend on how it was taken off the table. If there is a Manti or Beowulfen naval presence in Cachalot, and if I choose to avoid Parthian on the basis that it would result in unnecessary and avoidable civilian deaths, and make it clear that that's the only reason I'm not executing Parthian, we come off looking restrained, not ineffectual. Especially in the aftermath of all the contradictory stories about what happened to 11th Fleet. Helen looked less than convinced, but she clearly recognized that this wasn't a good place to push. Capriotti gave what he'd just said a few seconds to sink in, then sat back once more. I don't see any need to discuss this particular concern with the rest of the staff, he said. If S&P is right, and there's no picket to get in our way, it will never arise. If there is, then the final decision on Parthian will be mine anyway. I want all three of you, though, to be thinking about the possibility that S&P isn't right, and considering what I suppose you might call a partial Parthian. The outer system's infrastructure, especially in the snapper belt, has a much lower population, and the people in it are much more lavishly equipped with life pods and small craft. Given even a few hours' warning, they should be able to evacuate almost totally. Going after Snapper would make Buccaneer's point, I think. And if I emphasize to the system government that we were deliberately avoiding heavier casualties, we should get credit for showing restraint as well. Helen nodded with what might have been a bit more enthusiasm. All right, Capriori stood. I think we could all use some supper of our own. Why don't the three of you join me in my dining cabin? Of course, sir, thank you, Helen said, and the three staffers followed him from the briefing room. Angelica has a point about Buccaneer's premises, Capriotti thought, as they headed for the lift shaft. She's not the only person who's going to make it, either. For that matter, it's a virtual certainty that sooner or later somebody is going to execute Parthian, whatever I do. He hid a mental grimace. Parthian was the one part of the detailed ops plan with which he totally disagreed from the instant he read it. The new improved cataphracts and the pods, which had been delivered along with TF-783's instructions, had effectively unlimited range. Well, all missiles had effectively unlimited range, really. But the cataphract second stage meant it was capable of terminal maneuvers at the end of its run, as opposed to a purely ballistic weapon coasting helplessly through space after its impellers burned out. That meant, in theory, that missiles launched from well outside the 15.84 LM hyperlimit of the Cachalot system's K-4 primary were fully capable of hitting targets in the vicinity of Orca, the system's inhabited planet, despite the fact that Orca's orbital radius was less than three light minutes. For that matter, Orca's orbital infrastructure wasn't what one might call an elusive target. Capriotti had no doubt that Liang Tao Rutgers and his tactical officers would be capable of taking out every bit of it without ever crossing the limit inbound. But there were two things no TAC officer could possibly guarantee if Capriotti ordered them to do that. First, they couldn't guarantee Orca wouldn't suffer exactly the same sort of collateral catastrophe which had destroyed the Manticoran city of Yawada Crossing. And second, and even worse, if he executed Parthian, essentially a hit-and-run strike from extreme range to avoid entering the Mantis missile envelope, 
there would be no time for an orderly evacuation. They'd probably save more lives than the Mantis had managed to save in the Yawada strike. But almost a billion of the Cachalot system's 6.9 billion citizens lived and worked in that infrastructure. In the course of his career, Vincent Capriotti had done more things he hadn't liked than he cared to contemplate. Committing mass murder wasn't going to be one of them, whatever Operation Buccaneer called for. But sooner or later, someone will, Vincent, he thought. It's the next best damned thing to an Eridani violation, but someone will. And what the hell do we do when the Solarian League starts violating the edict? He didn't like that thought. He didn't like it at all. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a snifter of magically animated spray from the great wave of Kanagawa and a can full of powerful legalistic murmuring sure to brighten up their next batch of stone soup. Plus thanks and praise for Thomas Kidd, Susan R. Matthews, and Chris Ferracchio, editor and authors in Great New Anthology, Overruled. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>